0: Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is Andrew Owen. Yes, and today we're going to continue this basically the progression of basically music history that we started last week. We started, you know, with the pre-classical galant style and today we're moving to the classical and the, the actual classical period. So, <clears throat> sorry. So, the classical period itself lasted from approximately uh, 1775 to 1825. Uh, the name classical is applied to the period because in art and literature there was keen interest in and admiration for and emulation uh, um, of the classical artistic and literary uh, heritage of Greece and Rome. So, um, you know, because in the, in the Baroque period people were looking back, you know, at, at Greece and at, and at Rome, but they were looking back in terms of you know uh, drama right but now they're looking back at at Greece but in terms of architecture now things are very symmetrical and things like that and that's why form is so important here in the classical period yeah i mean back
1: in back in the baroque era the biggest issue was um trying to make something I mean the only reason they harkened back to the ancient Greeks was to try and figure out how music made such a, a keen yeah. uh, difference on people's moods yeah. and so they, they did that with drama by because they knew that the old Greek forms just had a single line of music mm-hmm. except they added this uh, I uh, one. In any case, the classical period is uh, a hearkening back to the aesthetic principles of the classical eras mm-hmm. of, uh, of ancient days, which we have still in stone buildings and things. If you yeah. look at the old, uh, <coughs> old classical yeah. things, that you find all this symmetry everywhere, all this yeah. uh, very clean uh, usage. hmm So yeah, intellectually this era has been labeled uh, the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, Philosophers uh, like Rousseau and Voltaire and Montesquieu wrote of the value of the common person and the power of human reasoning in overcoming the problems of the world. So it it was a very empowering uh, time, Mm -hmm. especially in comparison to previous times. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this revolution in thinking inevitably led to the conflict uh, between the old order and the new ideas. So we have uh, people who do you like this sense of hierarchy, and then mm-hmm. you have the the classicists who think, well, you can actually get out of that if you think the right thoughts and do the right things. Um, so the French and American revolutions in the last quarter of the 18th century were stimulated by this new attitude. We found that uh, the we found that it was it was perfectly a uh, it was a possibility as a government to not be tethered to a monarchy. You could yeah. do what you wanted to do and still have a ordered society. Yeah, uh, all this comes out of the Age of Enlightenment, which is what, uh, which is why this kind of music is often called the Enlightenment gallant style. Yeah, so that's a big thing.
0: Yeah, and if you notice, I said you know at the beginning that you know this is this this era is from approximately 1775 to 1825, but you know other textbooks say 1750. You know after Bach dies, and we actually talked about it last week a little bit. And so, you know, the, the dates, because this is actually a progression, right? You, you can see kind of like a, a, an evolution of the between the, the pre-classic, preclassical and the classical. So, you know, the dates are not perfect, you know. Um, so the musical scene in the classical period reflected the changes occurring in the society in which the music was being written. Uh, this was the first era in music in which public concerts became an important part of the musical scene. Uh, music was still being composed for the church and the court but the advent of public concerts reflected the new view that music should be written for the enjoyment and entertainment of the common person. This is also uh, because, you know, at this time, we also have the industrial, well, the beginnings of the industrial revolution. So, you know, people have a little more time in their hands. They have a little more money. So they decide to, you know, spend on their entertainment. You know, they don't have to stay all day in the in the farm, you know, uh, raising cattle or whatever they did. So they actually have a little more time in their hands. So, of course, uh, they spend money in entertainment. So this is also important because, you know, we have uh, people like, you know, uh, Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven and how different they worked, right? I mean Haydn was basically a servant, right, of the court And then we have Mozart who was, uh, he worked for the court, but then he also Supplemented his income with, you know, writing his operas and then we have Beethoven who was basically a self self self-made man, right? He basically worked for himself. He he basically told the uh, One of one of those monarchs that there was many kings, but there was only one Beethoven (laughs) You had a point.
1: Yeah Uh... If those are all just government offices. What he's doing is uh, work for humanity itself. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's what he's going for. So yeah, unlike the Renaissance or Baroque eras, which included many important composers, uh, and trends, the music of the classical era was dominated by only like three principal composers. Were never I mean, even very well-educated musicians. If they are pressed to name more than three classical musicians, will come yeah. short. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, In fact, I remember my medievalist professor Jan Herlinger saying uh, how strange it was that people don't uh, gave an entire period to and it designated an entire period just to music that was composed by three composers yeah. in one city for about thirty years, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, pretty, it is a pretty good point. Uh, that is but, but really the, the Enlightenment Gallant style does span beyond the the, the big three composers. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are The three composers that people know, of course, are Franz Josef Haydn, uh, mm-hmm. 1732 to 1809, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart from 1756 to 1791, a uh, much shorter life than Haydn yeah. and Ludwig van Beethoven which who who only really was a uh, a classical composer for the first part yeah. of his life he basically invented the romantic era exactly yeah so so Mozart and Haydn are the are the two big figures for, uh, of the period but there are other people uh, yeah. that that are worth mentioning especially even in the later eras you have a later part of the period like Clementi or uh, mm-hmm. uh Playel, one of mm-hmm. One of the great rivals of Mozart, uh, for for the first time during the classical period, most of the important stylistic advances that occurred can be observed most clearly in instrumental forms. So this is when the symphony is invented, which is why mm-hmm. our podcast covers it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we have this invention of the concerto, mm-hmm. uh, or not really the invention, but the um, the development of it. Obviously, there are plenty of concertos in the Baroque era. Yeah. Um, so the concerto is really developed. The sonata is developed as a solo genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in instrumental chamber music, such as uh, the Beethoven string quartets. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is also when string quartets are invented. Haydn. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Haydn essentially invents the string quartet. Yeah. Church music tended to be more conservative than secular compositions, uh, which also helps to explain why stylistic innovations uh, were seen most clearly in instrumental music, but were less prevalent in the choral music of period. So, if you do. Um, Choral music uh, from the classical era—you'll find that it does still have plenty of counterpoint, still yeah. plenty of something that it sounds like uh, one of the late Baroque people
0: could have easily written this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, choral and instrumental forms overlap during the classical period to an unprecedented degree. Uh, forms developed in the instrumental area um, and where appropriate uh, and used for good effect in choral music. Uh, things like sonata allegro form, you know, sonata form, which we talked about before, um, is often found in sonata uh, in, in sonata or symphony movements. Uh, is also used in sections of of classical um, masses, of course. Uh, and Beethoven included uh, choral sections in two instrumental works, his Choral Fantasia and the Ninth Symphony, of course, which basically is one of those first, it's the first symphony that yeah, uses a choir.
1: Oh yeah, so that's, that's always kind of fun, mm-hmm. and, and the Choral Fantasia does sound a lot like the Ninth Symphony. Yeah. Uh, it's the same sort of idea, just bringing it into the symphony, I mean there's no reason that a symphony can't have a choir more than any other thing. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't have to be so segregated. So this period in music history is sometimes referred to as the Viennese classic period, mm-hmm. and it was centered in Vienna. Be- uh, Beethoven, Haydn, and Mozart, though none, was a native Viennese person, uh, really the first well-known Vienna-born composer that anyone knows is Schubert. <laughs> uh, uh, they all worked in Vienna for a, a very long time in their careers, or at least very significant periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so although Vienna was the focal point for musical activity of the period, classical music is not really that parochial. They're, they're really shooting for being universal in spirit and style. Uh, so uh, we find this kind of music being composed in Italy uh, mm-hmm. and the late Baroque operas really start uh, sounding more and more like this, yeah. uh, classical style. And that's what I think the, the Enlightenment Gallant style really draws itself from and seems to come a lot from that. Um, that style of, of this very universal very clear very balanced and um, you know, it, it's music that makes sense in and of itself
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh, so let's talk about the style so of this kind of music So music from the classical period is distinctive in style from what preceded and followed it. Some of the questions related to performance practice in Renaissance and Baroque music are less complex because at this point in music history we have uh, much clearer and more explicit indications from the composer concerning the tempo, dynamics, and expressive qualities of the music under consideration. So, yeah, of course, because, you know, in the Baroque period, you know, um, the composer writes something and then he gives it to, you know, Bach just writes a thing and gives it to the players that Sunday. And then he basically tells them what to do, right? Okay, you can play forte over here, piano over here and things like that. Uh, And we're going to do it at this tempo. Um, And of course, we don't have those indications now. So we can we need to extrapolate a lot of those things. But in the classical period, you know, actually composers start to get more more into the the nitty-gritty of comp- composing, right? They, they start to get, be more um, you know, expressive, I guess, in their compositions and, and get more attention to detail in there. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's very very precise. They have uh, all mm-hmm. these little markings like forte, piano, and yeah. things that, that help to get people doing kind of the same thing. So like in the Baroque era, the, the expectation was that here are the notes, figure it out, have some fun. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the classical period, it's okay, here are the rules, follow mm-hmm. these rules, enjoy yeah. them. And then when you get to the Romantic era, Mm -hmm. then then the composer includes markings in the score to tell you how to feel and how to think Mm -hmm. and how to live and breathe, (laughs) which is the ultimate tyranny of the composer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, moreover, there have uh, there have been public performances of this repertoire from the time of its composition to the present.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, this, this stuff has not gone down very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is both a help and a hindrance in light of the fact that, uh, through the last two centuries, certain romantic inventions have become an accepted part of the performance of this music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, the more people hear, the, the more popular a piece is, the more it has... Um, had these romantic colors yeah. and these these things which really make a, a classical piece boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take away a sense of the classical era's love of keeping things in time and making mm-hmm. sure that uh, everything is balanced and light, mm-hmm. you add these romantic inventions like rubato mm-hmm. and, yeah. and weight, uh, then <laughs> you lose that. So the more proper the piece is, the more it's going to probably suffer yeah. from that. So if you find a good obscure piece from the classical period, you're more likely to find um, something that's more time appropriate
2: yeah. and, it's, and,
1: when I, and when I say time appropriate I really only mean the, the goal of making the music good mm-hmm. uh, it has nothing to do with authenticity I mean, it has something to do with it but mm-hmm. uh, ultimately if you play baroque music out of tempo or classical music out of tempo like a romantic piece it's going to be boring just like yeah. if you played a romantic piece uh, in, without any verbato at all then it's going to sound boring yeah. as well mm-hmm. uh, so yeah uh, the same problem of course uh uh, happens with Baroque music as what happens with classical music uh, and for to a lesser extent music from the Renaissance also has that so if you go on Spotify and listen for recordings of the early Baroque Monteverdi or even people like uh, Gabriele Palestrina, you'll find some old recordings where people are just uh, really out of time lots yeah. of just like listen to my my voice out of the choir yeah. kind of singing <laughs>
0: um, yeah. yeah some very romantic uh, interpretations that's very true
1: <laughs> uh, people, people used to do that back in the mid 20th century and i think since the 80s people have started uh, getting out of that yeah i, <laughs> I was do. like maybe, maybe let's make the music interesting make it good yeah <laughs> but it's still sort of a minority movement in music sadly. that's
0: very true very true so the lighter quality of classical music also is derived from its slower harmonic movement. Uh, Baroque music, with its emphasis on vertical structure and use of figured bass or or basso continuo, um, which is, you know, if, if you don't know, it's basically this combination of instruments: a cello or a, a low, a low instrument like a bassoon or a cello or something like that, with a keyboard instrument like a harpsichord. And they and they, you know, have um, in the music they basically you only have one line that is the bass line, and then they have the little numbers under it. So the keyboard player is going to figure out what kind of chords he's going to play. but that is, So in the Baroque period, uh, the harmonic movement is always changing. It's a little, more, it's a little faster um, and uh, almost on every beat, basically. But in classical music, chords um, uh, change a little less frequently, giving it a more uh, graceful sweep and lightness of phrasing than uh, that created by the pulsating feel of a heart's realizing a baroque-figure bass part, uh, supporting the choral um, uh, singing with rapidly changing embellished chords. Uh, During the classical period, the keyboard player was no longer typically the composer or conductor, but instead was simply one of the players in the orchestra. Um, and like we said before, you know, uh, around the seventeen seventies, uh, the basically the basso continuo kind of dis- dies out. Um, the keyboard part uh, should be more or less obtuse and less highly decorated than that of the baroque work, of course. Because also, you know, in the in the baroque period, when you play baroque music, there's a lot of ornaments. You can improvise a lot more. Um, and, and of course, in the in the classical period, that's not the case. Um, and the classical era was an era of formality, of, of, as well. Uh, the music was characterized by careful attention to form and by elegance and restraint. The formal structure was based on the use of thematic development and harmonic structure. So um, this idea, you know, of sonata form of having a, a theme and then develop that, developing that theme in what we call, you know, the developing the developed section where you just, you know, you know, you play with that theme, you know, you break it down into little parts, and then you basically kind of become. Uh, that's what the composers are always showing off in the develop in the develop development section, um, but we we also have this idea of you know looking back at art the architecture of of Greece and you know be, everything be being very symmetrical and elegant.
1: Yeah, I mean when we say formality, literally anytime well virtually any time, we mean we say formality, we mean uh, adhering to a form. Yeah, um, and and we all adhere things to forms like the you know thirty minute yeah uh, sitcom mm-hmm. <laughs> has to be 30 minutes long or you mm-hmm. know including commercials yeah. uh, this is the same sort of idea when we we talk about formality in the classical era we're talking about uh, conforming to to a uh, specified form, mm-hmm. uh, and showing what you can do with those restraints. It's like uh, a good game of uh, any game, like a football or anything. It's only good because of the rules you put on of it. Of course, yeah. Uh, if you take away that, then all you have are just people running around with a ball doing nothing. <laughs> uh, and so the class era was all about putting those rules and, and watching what you can do with those rules, and, mm-hmm. and the joy of putting together different pieces mm-hmm. uh, of uh, of musical. Uh, rhetoric, musical work. So, the music of the classical era is characterized also by objectivity. While emotion is an important aspect of all music, the classical period uh, has a lot more emphasis on controlling the emotions. You didn't want to uh, express just a whole lot. It's all about just using some stock emotions and and using it as a way of... uh, making the music pleasant. But the goal was making music good, it was Mm -hmm. not making music expressive. That was all they really cared about. And by good I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, well formed, well put together, Mm -hmm. Uh, like a really nice steak. <laughs> uh, so this control is evident in the use of dynamics and expressive differences within sections or movements of a composition so we have a lot of emphasis on that the, the Baroque notion of terraced dynamics yeah. uh, coupled with the expression of a single emotion or given section of a composition was eventually replaced in the classical era with um, a lot more variance of emotional content within a given movement or section or even a measure of a piece uh, so dynamically dynamically speaking, this was accomplished through the use of crescendo and decrescendo, which um, you know getting gradually louder, getting gradually softer. These things didn't really happen so much in the Baroque era. Uh, at least we don't have any notation of that. It, was, it made much more sense in just looking at Baroque music to either have a section be loud or soft, never to get from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that, that kind of dynamic is like I said earlier, um, terraced dynamics, like a terrace on the side of a, a hill. Yeah, Uh goes under. It has a certain uh, uh, height, and then you have a new height mm-hmm. from loud to soft, soft to loud. Uh classical lira is the first to really include crescendos, which we talked about in the last podcast, talking yeah. about uh, Stamitz mm-hmm. uh, who who had that Mannheim effect of increasing, slowly increasing
0: the volume of the music. Yeah and yeah that's also important that in the baroque you know each movement has its own mood you know because that was the goal of the baroque period you know stereo emotions into a particular into what the composer wanted to right so in here in the in the classical period is different in the classical period you have you you have a first theme that it that could be lyrical and then you have a second theme that is completely opposite to that so in one movement you can have many different moods you know it's not so uh clear-cut as it was in the baroque period so and now we're going to talk about Joseph Haydn, the next composer um, in our in our progression here of of classical um, of the classical era. So, Franz Joseph Haydn, he was born on March 31st of 1732 in Rohrau, Austria, and he died in May 31st of 1809 in Vienna. He is, of course, an Austrian composer who was one of the most important figures in the development of the classical style. Uh, in music during the 18th century he helped establish the forms and styles of uh for the string quartet and the symphony he's basically considered the father of course of the string quartet but he's also kind of like the father of the symphony as well with all his um his really cool um developments
1: so, uh, so yeah, Haydn in his early years was the second son of uh, of pretty humble parents. He, his father was a wheelwright. His mother, before her marriage, was a cook for the lords of the village. Uh, it was something like uh, like you imagine uh, Mrs. Patmore in. Uh, Downton Abbey, sort of that sort of lifestyle, just, you know, service industry. They were mm-hmm. working that way, at least uh, his, or his mother was. Haydn's uh, Haydn early revealed his unusual musical gifts, uh, and a cousin who was a school principal and choir master in the nearby city of uh, Heinburg offered to take him into his home and train him. Haydn wasn't even six years old yet, uh, but he left home never to return to the parental cottage except for rare brief visits. So he, he went off and had his own life at the age of five <laughs> which is you know it's just <laughs> early to go out and be separate from your family but mm-hmm. I, I, it looks like he
0: did just fine mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so uh the young Haydn sang in the in the church choir uh, he learned to play uh, various instruments and obtained a good basic knowledge of music but his life changed decisively when he was eight years old uh, the musical director of saint stephen's saint stephen's cathedral in vienna had observed, observed the boy on a visit to hamburg and invited him uh, to serve uh, as, as chorister at the Austrian capital's most important church. Haydn's uh, parents accepted the offer, and thus in 1740, Haydn moved to Vienna. Uh, he stayed at the choir school for nine years, uh, acquiring an enormous practical knowledge of music by constant performances, but uh, to his disappointment, receiving little instruction in music theory. Uh, he had to work hard to fulfill his obligations as a chorister, uh, and when his voice changed, when his voice broke as we say he was expelled uh, from both the cathedral choir and the choir school so poor for shame yeah <laughs> he wasn't needed anymore <laughs> you know, he was a friend of utility as
1: aristotle is. as soon as he's not useful they're just gonna throw him away yeah so so with no money and few possessions Haydn, at the age of 17 as, as you know as a guy with a nice adult male voice was Mm -hmm. left to his own devices. He found refuge for a while in the garret of a fellow musician and supported himself miserably, quote-unquote, with with odd musical jobs. He meanwhile undertook an arduous course of self-instruction through the study of musical works, notably those of um, Immanuel Bach, Mm -hmm. C.P.E. Bach, and of leading manuals of musical theory. Uh, so he was doing lots of lots of brain work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a fortunate chance brought him to the attention of the Italian composer and singing teacher Nicola Porpora, mm-hmm. uh, who accepted him as a accompanist for voice lessons and corrected Haydn's compositions. Mm-hmm. Now, Porpora was, a, uh, was an Italian, he was a Neapolitan, I think Neapolitan, uh, opera composer. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was, like I said earlier, uh, one of the composers of um, that late uh, Baroque, yeah. Italian opera style, which sort of becomes the, uh, the Enlightenment gallant kind of music with all these little balanced phrases and things. Yeah. And Porpora is sort of the link between, uh, I, th- yeah. I, I, I think him to be the link between uh, the Neapolitan opera world and, um, and the Enlightenment gallant period.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. With persistence and energy, Haydn made progress. He was eventually introduced to the music loving Austrian novel, nobleman called Joseph von Furnberg, uh, with whose home he played chamber music. Um, for the instrumentalist, uh, there he wrote his first string quartet. So, a good, th- that's a good, um, you know, good start for Haydn there with, with you know the string quartet. Um, through the recommendation of Fernberg in 1758, Haydn was engaged as musical director and chamber composer of the Bohemian court uh, of the Bohemian Count Ferdinand Maximilian von Morzin. Uh, Haydn was put in sh- in charge of an orchestra of about 16 musicians. And for this ensemble, he wrote his first symphony, as well as numer- numerous divertimenti for wind band or for wind instruments and strings. Um, these early musical compositions were still conventional in character, uh, yet a certain freshness of melodic invention and sparkle marked them as the work of a future master. You know, like we said before, Haydn really was, you know, almost obsessed with melodies, you know, pretty melodies and all these things. Um, and so these compositions are. are are really good, but you know these compositions are almost in the galant style, and we see the progression of of, Haydn, of Haydn's music as he as he gets older. Oh yeah. So uh,
1: so this brings him to uh, uh, brings us to our next big part of his life, which is his time at Esterhazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Haydn stayed only briefly with von Mortzin as, uh, as financial difficulties forced his patron to dismiss the orchestra. Soon Haydn was invited to enter the service of Prince Paul Anton Esterhazy. Uh, so Paul uh, Esterhazy, I guess, is his English name. Paul, mm-hmm. P-A-L. Uh, mm-hmm. The Esterhazys were one of the wealthiest and most influential families of the Austrian Empire. Think uh, uh, Versailles of that area. Yeah, uh, They were just very, very wealthy uh, folk, uh, and they they boasted a distinguished record of supporting music. Uh, Prince Paul Antal had had a well-appointed orchestra performing regularly at his castle at Eisenstadt, Mm -hmm. which is a small town some thirty miles from Vienna. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because his aged music director uh, was ailing, the prince appointed the relatively unknown Haydn to be the assistant conductor in 1761. While the musical director oversaw church music, Haydn conducted the orchestra and coached the singers in almost daily rehearsals, composed most of the music required, and served as chief of the musical personnel. Uh, Haydn carried out his duties extremely well and re- revealed tact, good nature, and skill in dealing with people. Uh, from his first symphonies written for the Esterházys, Haydn amply displayed his characteristic good humor and wit, as well as the dependable freshness of his musical ideas. Um, although full maturity would come much later, uh, so his employment by the Esterhazy family proved decisive for his career. I mean, he was uh, he was like locked in there. He couldn't even really publish his music outside of that area, outside of the yeah. castle walls. Uh, so he remained in their service until his death. In a way, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he he did have some time so he could sort of venture off, but. But yeah, he, he, he stayed was, with that, that family. I mean, he was yeah, he, he was part of the staff, part of like yeah. in, like in Downton Abbey. He was part of the service industry, just like his mama. Yeah,
0: yeah. and and this this place Eisenstadt, uh, you know, it's like six hours in carriage to to Vienna. So you know, this this is one of those interesting things about Haydn that because he was far away from Vienna, he basically had to you know be very innovative in his composition. So that's a very important thing about his his compositions, of course, his life. Oh, yeah. um, in 1766, Haydn became musical director of the at the Esterhazy court. Uh, he raised the quality and increased the size of the prince's uh, musical ensembles by appointing many uh, choice instrumentalists and singers. Uh, his ambitious plans were uh, supported by Prince Miklos, <coughs> who, at uh, the death of his brother in 1762, had become head of the Esterhazy family. Um, he was able to appreciate Haydn's musical contributions and created an atmosphere uh, con- 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 conducive to the development and maturing of Haydn's art. In addition to composing operas for the court, Haydn composed symphonies, string quartets, and other chamber music. Uh, the prince was passionate performers at the at the baritone, and Haydn provided uh, for his patron more than 150 compositions featuring uh, this now obsolete uh, cello-like instrument. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: the baritone has mm-hmm. more than a hundred fifty compositions <laughs> from Haydn, and no one plays this thing anymore. That that was really yeah, great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth giving a venture to it. I mean, it'd be nice to pull out a baritone and see what you can write for it. But it was, it was just one of those things that came out of utility. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I think about, uh, I mean, I imagine this is sort of like a, a Downton Abbey, you no know, working as working down with a footman working down with everybody else and and having to do all these things for whoever happened to be over the house, Mm -hmm. whoever happened to want to keep them on staff. Yeah. Some uh, sort of fun. So Haydn served Prince Miklós for nearly thirty years. He frequently visited Vienna and the Prince's retinue, and on uh, these visits, a close friendship developed between himself and Mozart, Wolfgang mm-hmm. Uh The two composers felt inspired by each other's work. Mozart declared that he had learned from Haydn how to write quartets, and dedicated a superb set of six such works to his beloved friend. Yeah. Uh, Haydn's music too shows the impact of his young friend. Uh, the mature composer was by no means a set in his ways. He was very flexible. He was receptive to a lot of his, a lot of the new ideas as he went along in age. Uh, as we all know, or as, as at least Beethoven scholars know, he did teach, uh, Haydn did teach Beethoven a little bit near uh, the end of his life. I mean, he was just yeah. right there and sort of Forrest Gumped his way into everyone's uh, lives, you know, somehow wound up. Uh, in, in very important places, yeah. but to be fair, he was a very important musician, and yeah. uh, everybody who was anybody in music knew the guy. Yeah, yeah. even if they hadn't heard any of his music, because it was stuck there at Esterhazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And those compositions that that he ro- that Mozart wrote for in the dedication of Haydn, there is a string quartet, right, or the set of string quartets that he wrote for Haydn, and those are some very strange compositions for the time. You know, they're a very dissonant. And they, when you listen to those compositions, they don't sound anything like you know you would expect from the classical period. So those are very interesting compositions to check out. During the 1760s, Haydn's fame began to spread through Europe. Uh, the Austrian and Czech monasteries did much to uh, disseminate his church music, as well as his symphonies, divertimenti, sonatas and concertos. Aristocratic patrons in South Germany, Italy and the Austrian Empire uh, assiduously collected his music. And uh, their, uh, the, their libraries would eventually become important sources for copies of, of his work, of course. Oh, yeah.
1: So the period from 1768 to about 74 marks Haydn's maturity as a composer. Uh, the music written then from the, uh, the Stabat Mater from 1767 to the large scale Missa Sancti Nicolai from uh, 1772 would be sufficient to place him among the chief composers of the era. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also wrote lots of operas uh, in these years uh, uh, that were designed to enhance his own reputation and that of the Esterhazy court. Among his other important works from this uh, period are the string quartets of Opus 20, the uh, piano sonata in C minor, the symphonies in minor keys, especially the so-called Trauer symphonie Mm -hmm. uh, in E minor, number 44, the morning symphony. M O U uh, R morning symphony, so named because of slow movement, which was a particular favorite of the composer. But it was performed at a memorial service for Haydn, and the uh, and the farewell symphony number no. forty five, uh, which has its own adorable. Program and things that one does during that. So, uh, so for reasons that have no historical grounding, this has come to be known as Haydn's Sturm und Drang period, mm. after a literary movement that came somewhat later. However, yeah. inapt historically, the term does describe the, chain, the, the character of many of these works. It's just sort of darker and more stormy and stressy, Sturm und, Sturm und Drang uh, of these works. In fact, they, uh, the, the term has now come to stand for the turgid style that these works uh, exhibit as well as other works. that So when you think of Sturm uh, und Strang, you think of Haydn's period here, but you also think of a lot of the music of Immanuel Bach and other composers mm-hmm. that were still writing in the classical idiom, but still write, but writing in a way that sort of sounded
0: stormy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the following decade and a half did even more to enhance Haydn's fame. His operatic output continues strong until 1785, notwithstanding the destruction of the Esterhazy Opera House by fire in, in 1779. Increasingly, however, his audience lay outside his emperor's court. In 1775, he composed his first large-scale oratorio, uh, Il Ritorno di Tobia, uh, for the musicians' society in Vienna. Uh, for unknown reasons, relations between Hayd- Haydn and the Viennese musicians cooled considerably for uh, considerably a few years later. Uh, by the early 1780s, though, uh, things seemed much improved, and, uh, and, the Vien- and the Viennese firm um, uh, Artaria uh, published his six Opus 33 quartets. Uh, this important work quickly set a new standard for the genre, putting many of his competitors in, in this increasingly lucrative market out of business. Uh, Mozart was a notable was exception, but um, even he took several years to complete his own set of, three, of six quartets. Um, in 1784, Haydn revised uh, Tobia or, uh, for another Viennese performance, um, uh, adding choral numbers and cutting back on some of the extended uh, capo structures, a clear sign that he was well aware of changing sensibilities. In mid-decade as well, uh, uh, as well came a commission from Paris uh, to compose a set of symphonies, and Haydn's resulting Paris symphonies are a landmark of the genre. Uh, It was also about this time that he received the commission to compose the seven last words of our Savior on the cross uh, for the um, incorrigibly cheerful Haydn. Um, Writing seven successive uh, dual movements was a particularly difficult uh, undertaking, but the effort resulted in one of his most admired works. Oh yeah, it
1: was very strange. I mean, it was difficult for him to write such dour very sad music. Uh, So yeah, Haydn's professional success was not matched in his personal life. Uh, His marriage to Maria Anna Keller in 1760 produced neither a a pleasant, peaceful home nor any children. Uh, Not that she has to make any children now, that's her business. Uh, But Mm -hmm. Haydn's wife did not understand music and showed zero interest in her husband's work. I mean, it was literally like marrying a cobbler. Uh, to her. It just made no difference. Like, yeah, you're good at making shoes, you're good at making music, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Her disdain went to the extremes of using his manuscripts for uh, pastry pan linings or curl papers. (laughs) I mean, people don't, I mean, this, uh, she was not very appreciative of Haydn's uh, genius. <laughs> That's okay, you know, not everybody has to appreciate everything, I suppose. Uh, so, so Haydn was not insensitive to the attractions of other women, and for years he carried on a love affair with Luigia Polzelli, a young Italian mezzo, a soprano in the princess service. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, uh, he, he did not have a happy marriage, but he was able to uh, occasionally uh, look with a lustful eye upon other women.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, let's talk about his English period. So, um, when when Prince Miklos died in seventeen ninety, uh, he was succeeded by his son Prince Antal, uh, who did not care for music and dis- and dismissed most of the court musicians. Haydn was uh, retained, however, and continued to receive his salary. No duties were required of, of him, uh, enabling Haydn to do whatever he pleased. After such a long time at the Esterhazy Court, however, uh, the composer was eager to try a different way of life. At this point, a violinist and concert manager, um, Johann Peter Salomon, arrived from England and commissioned from, from Haydn six new symphonies and, and 20 smaller compositions to be conducted by the composer himself in a series of, of orchestral concerts in London, sponsored by uh, Salomon. Um, Uh, Haydn gladly accepted his offer and the two men set off to London in December of 1790 and so this is the first set of of symphonies that we call the London symphonies the 12th his 12th last symphonies
1: oh yeah so on new year's day of 1791 Haydn arrived in England Uh, he arrived there and in the following 18 months he proved uh, to be uh, very much uh, rewarded by the experience the many novel impressions the meeting with eminent musicians and the admiration bestowed on him had a very long, a very strong impact on his creative work. Mm-hmm. Um, he was effeted, uh, lionized, and treated as a genius. Charles Burney published a poem in his honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Charles Burney being the great uh, musicologist, the, one of the early musicologists that just sort of talked to everybody, um, and whose daughter was a famous novelist. Uh, the, the twelve symphonies he wrote on his first and second visits to London represents the, represent the climax of his orchestral output, those the twelve London symphonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, their virtuosity of instrumentation, uh, very careful treatment of musical forms, and freely flowing melodic inspiration, uh, endeared the works to British audiences. Uh, I mean, the pieces were just very witty as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, their popularity is reflected in various nicknames bestowed on them, mm-hmm. like uh, the surprise, mm-hmm. military, the clock, mm-hmm. drum roll, uh, Surprise Symphony is pretty delightful. Yeah, you, you'll hear it if you ever shop at the fresh market or something. It comes <laughs> up in the
0: background. Yeah. <laughs> in in June of 1792, Haydn left London for Germany. On his journey, on on his journey, he stopped at Bern, uh, where the 22 year old Beethoven was introduced to him. And it was arranged that the tempestuous young composer should move to Vienna to receive Haydn's instruction. Um, in a letter of 1793 to Beethoven's patron, the elector of, of Cologne, Haydn stated that Beethoven will one day be considered one of Europe's greatest composers and I shall be proud to be called his teacher. So, you know, because Beethoven, you know, he was going to study with, with Mozart, but then, of course, Mozart died. So then uh, Beethoven Way was... to go about this, <laughs> sorry. So, exactly. And so Beethoven uh, studies with, with um, Haydn for a little bit.
1: Yeah, so uh, so Haydn's curios- uh, so Haydn's curiously cool reception on his return to Vienna in 1792 may have strengthened his decision to make a second journey to England mm-hmm. in 1794. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the principal compositions of his second visit to London were the second set of London symphonies, or Salomon symphonies, mm-hmm. uh, numbers 99 through 104, and the six Aponyi uh, quartets, Aponyi. Uh, which are number uh, 54 through 59. So while in London, Haydn reached even greater heights of inspiration, particularly in the last three symphonies he wrote, uh, numbers 102 through number 104, Mm -hmm. uh, of which the symphony number 102 in B-flat major is one of the greatest of all symphonies. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, At least, I mean, it's just one of the most popular ones, and people sort of look to it as the exemplary um, classical symphony. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the British public no longer regarded him as a sensation, but as an old and well-loved friend a lot can change in four years mm-hmm. um, so King George Third earnestly invited him to stay in England but Haydn for reasons that have never really been made clear preferred to return to his native Aus Österreich to his Austria mm-hmm. to serve the new head of the Esterhazy family Prince Miklos uh, II mm-hmm. uh, so he was he, he gave up life as a, as a celebrity in London to go back to the service industry in Austria because yeah. uh, you know it's, it's, it seems like a nice pleasant pace for him I imagine <laughs>
0: Yeah, so uh, also like you know at the time he he goes to London right and people in London they're not used to you know this this awesome you know compositions they're not used to uh, you know a composer of this caliber and if I remember correctly people at the time they were in London people were used to uh, hearing symphonies of of members that were like you know 20 people but then here comes um, Haydn with the symphonies that require like 40 people to perform so that's you know a big impact that he makes there in in London Um, so while he was in London in 1791 Haydn uh, had been uh, deeply moved by the performance of of Handel's masterly oratorios uh, deciding to compose further works in this genre, he obtained a suitable libretto, and after settling in, in Vienna and, res- and resuming his duties for Prince Ersterhazy, uh he started work on the Oratorio de Creation, uh, the text of which had been translated into German by uh, Baron Gottfried van Swieten. Uh, this, this work was planned and executed to enable performances in either Germany in German or English. Um, it is believed to be the first musical work published with text under, underlay in two languages, languages. Uh, The libretto was based on the epic poem uh, Paradise Lost by John Milton and on the Genesis book of the Bible. Uh, Composing the oratorio proved a truly congenial task, and the years devoted to it were among the happiest in Haydn's life. The creation was first publicly performed in 1798 and earned enormous popularity subsequently. Um, Haydn was thus encouraged to produce another oratorio, which absorbed him uh, until 1801. Uh, The extended poem, The Seasons, by James Thompson, was chosen as the basis of the much shorter libretto, again adapted and translated, uh, if if somewhat awkwardly, by Swieten, so as to enable performance in either German or English again. Uh, The libretto allowed Haydn to compose delightful musical analogues uh, of events in nature, and as a result, the oratory achieved much success, both at the Austrian court and in public performances, uh, yet, its, its musical imagery was even then seen as old-fashioned, a circumstance ruefully acknowledged by Haydn, uh, who blamed von Swieten's poor advice regarding text setting.
1: <laughs> so, Haydn's late creative output included Six Masses, written for his patron Miklos, uh, the second; those are among his most the most significant masses of the 18th century. Uh, those uh, six masses. So he he was also he also continued uh, to compose magnificent string quartets, uh, notably the the six Erdöge quartets, known as Opus 76. And uh, in 1797, Haydn gave to the Austrian nation the stirring song, "Gott erhaute Franz der Kaiser," God save the Emperor Francis. Uh, France, Emperor mm-hmm. Franz, Francis is an English translation. Yeah. Um, Frank, yeah. God save Emperor Frank. So it was used uh, for more than a century after the uh, afterwards as the national anthem of the Austrian monarchy and as the patriotic song, Deutschland Deutschland über alles, yeah. Germany Germany above all else. Yeah. In Germany, where it remains the, where it remains the national anthem uh, as uh, as Deutschlandlied. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the song was be- so beloved that Haydn decided to use it as a theme for variations of one of his uh, string quartets, the Emperor Quartet, mm-hmm. um, Opus seventy six, number three. And we know this tune in the uh, in the Protestant churches of the uh, United States uh, as "Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken," mm-hmm. setting of uh, mm-hmm. Psalm eighty seven, um, for uh, setting of that text uh, with that tune. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion City of our God. He's really well known to you. Yeah.
0: So, uh, <clears throat> um, the seasons broke my back, quote unquote. Haydn is reported to have said, and indeed, apart uh, from the last two masses of 1801 and 1802, he undertook no more large scale works. Uh, during the last years of his life, he was apparently incapable of further work. In 1809, Napoleon's forces besieged uh, Vienna and in made enter the city. Haydn refused to leave his house and take refuge, refuge in the inner city. Uh, Napoleon placed a guard of honor outside Haydn's house and the enfeebled composer was uh, much touched by the visit of the French hussars. Um, hussars officers who sang an area from the creation. On May 31st, Haydn died peacefully and he was buried two days later. He's like the happiest composer. <laughs> he just
1: dies peacefully in his yeah. home. it's nice. Everybody loved him. He was just a normal guy. He didn't have any emotional imbalances. Yeah, uh, just a pretty, pretty average, just, just dude. Yeah. Uh, except for that affair and the marriage. Other than that, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, so, uh, on to his works, his development, and his achievements. So, Haydn was an extremely prolific composer. In total, 108 symphonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, one of which is lost, and one of which is actually a symphony concertante. Uh, uh, 68 string quartets, 32 divertimenti for small orchestra, 126 trios for baritone, viola, and cello, uh, 29 trios for piano, violin, and the cello. 21 trios for two violins and cello. 47 piano sonatas. About 20 operas. It was the last Haydn opera you heard. Uh, well, he wrote 20 of them. Uh, 14 masses. He wrote six oratorios and two cello concerti. So Haydn's achievement was long confused by the fact that an enormous number of works were wrongly attributed to him. Uh, and it was not until the 1950s that musicological research was able to pair this staggering amount of conspiracy to attributions to Haydn's uh, from Haydn's recognized output. Uh, work on a definitive catalog of his compositions continued into the late 20th century. People had to really work on this stuff and, and pulling these scores out of the bottom of pie pans. And that's, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't find any scores left in the, <laughs> in the fireplace, I'm sure, mm. or down in the bottoms of drawers to keep the wood clean. <laughs> yeah.
0: In his oh, no. youth uh, and early career, Haydn experimented with uh, the prevailing stylistic trends. He was familiar with the uh, pompous and complex idiom of the preceding Baroque period. Uh, he then adopted the light, uh, gay, and elegant music style that was popular at the time in Austria, and he was subsequently in- influenced by the strongly emotional and expressive style uh, preferred by CPE Bach. And other uh, North German composers. He eventually achieved his own uh, distinctive musical identity by using some elements from all three of these styles simultaneously. So, of course, he wrote in, you know, his, his, we see the evolution basically of his style and all his um, innovations and contributions.
1: Right. Uh, so during the 1760s, Haydn began to solidify and deepen his style. His new technique of working with small motifs to tighten the fabric of a sonata form uh, turned the first movement of the sonata, the quartet, and symphony into a little musical drama. He's the one who really takes the sonata legro form and makes it what we know it as today, is this uh, really wonderful hero's journey uh, thing that we experience today. So in this, in the period from 1768 to 1774, uh, Happy, good old time, especially over on this side of the on this hemisphere. Uh, his music took on a deeper hue. Uh, the intellectualization that had steadily increased throughout the 1760s at last found its natural outlet in the mid-1780s, uh, when he seems to have gained the emotional strength that so much of his work had lost after the outburst of the early 1770s. So his Paris symphonies, <coughs> which are the uh, the eighties, uh, number eighties or so of his uh, symphonies, uh, which were written in 1785 through six, are near are just fantastic works of beauty and formal perfection. Formal perfection. Uh, they were uh, then they they possess lots of profoundness, profundity, uh, notably, noticeably, especially in the uh, in the slow movement of number eighty six and D. Uh, just he had a an extraordinary command of music and. Uh, he did pretty well for a servant in the servants industry, service industry, he did yeah. pretty well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the lo- the long of injected a new force in Haydn's music, but uh, side by side with a greatly increased nervous tension, his words began to, ch- to take on an emotional depth, often char- characteristics of the music of an aging composer. Haydn uh, began to explore new harmonic relationships, particularly particularly in the late piano trios. <coughs> On his return to Vienna, he uh, concentrated almost exclusively on vocal music and the string quartet. Uh, the last six masses he composed are pillars of symphonic strength and grandeur, uh, ranging from the, the brightness of the Missa in Tempore Belli of 1796, and the tears drama of the Nelson Mass in D minor of 1798, another very important work. Uh, here, the symphonic principles uh, uh, are brought to perfections uh, in the London symphonies are brilliantly combined uh, with all, all their contrapuntal forms, um, you know, counterpoint. <laughs> <laughs> and solo voices are blended with vocal quartet and choir, and there is, a, there is a constant juxtaposition of the available forces. Haydn's last instrumental works were the six uh, e- 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 Erodi quartets of Opus 76 of 1797, the two uh, Lobowitz quartets uh, of 1799, and the unfinished quartet of 1803. Uh, in these works uh, he, bought, he, he brought the art of the quartet to a new pinnacle uh, that was not to be equal until the quartets of Beethoven in, in his maturity. Oh yeah,
1: he invented it and he basically perfected it, the yeah. <laughs> string quartet. So Haydn was a true representative of the Enlightenment, his, his optimistic approach to life, his striving for a balance between intellect and emotion, his sense of moderation, uh, leading to the avoidance of strongly discordant moods. All these found just great, great expression in his music and were appreciated by his contemporaries. Uh, music lovers also found uh, his, uh, the, the nobility and deceptive simplicity of his idiom irresistible, uh, sparked by delightful outbursts of uh, humor. And he was just a very bright guy and people liked to listen to his music. Out. Uh, The the gaiety and naturalness of Haydn's music held less appeal in the Romantic era of the 19th century. Uh, However, when when dark, complex moods and ambivalent emotions were being explored in music, uh, that was was something that we experience a lot in the Romantic era, just the the darkness. His his music did not have the same appeal in the 19th century for that reason. Although many of his symphonies and quartets were performed with some frequency well past 1850. Uh, By the end of the century they had all but slipped from the repertory. But in the 20th century, there was a reevaluation of Haydn's work, and his outstanding thematic elaborations, his dependably engaging wit, the originality of his modulations, and the artistry and craftsmanship of his orchestration were again appreciated completely in the 20th century. Uh, it just took a little, little while to get off the ground.
0: Yeah. All right. So now we're going to talk about the composition of the day, which is one of his last symphonies, uh, the Symphony Number no. 94. In G major, um, and this is the second of the 12 uh, London Symphonies, um, and this this symphony is also popularly known as the Surprise Symphony. Um, so Haydn wrote this symphony in 1791 in London for a concert series that he was, you know, the, the London Symphonies um, in his first visit to England. Um, the premiere took place at the Hanover Square Rooms in London on March 23rd of 1792, with Haydn leading the orchestra, uh, seated at the forte piano. Um, of course at this time you know the idea of a conductor at the symphony is not really a thing yet um, so the surprise symphony score for a classical era orchestra consisting of two each um, of two flutes two oboes, two bassoons uh, two horns two trumpets and a timpani and the usual string section consisting of course of violin viola cellos, and double bass uh, a typical performance of the surprise symphony is lasts about 23 minutes so that's also important because you know we talked about stamina's last week in the pre-classical era and his symphonies are between 10 and 15 minutes long now in in here in the in one of his last symphonies of Haydn, you know we have 23 minutes and then the next notable composition of this time of course the symphony number five of Beethoven is about 30 minutes so things of course are expanding and we we talked about that before how things are get start to expand and expand and expand
1: they're realizing that the audience can sit and listen to the same piece for more than 23 minutes. It's, it's taking a little while, but are just testing the waters so yeah. over the course of the century. Uh, so Haydn's music contains many jokes, uh, and the Surprise Symphony includes probably the most famous of all the jokes. So the idea here is uh, you have a sudden fortissimo chord at the end of an otherwise piano opening theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the variation form, second movement of this, um, this mm-hmm. symphony. The music then returns to its original quiet dynamic as if nothing had happened, and the ensuing variations do not repeat the joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, in German, the official title is uh, mm-hmm. of this piece is, not surprise, but mit dem Paukenschlag, or with the kettledrum stroke. Yeah. It is known by that stroke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just uh, You have this, this really quiet thing. Uh, if you'll ever look at a score of it, it's just happy little triadic. Dum, dum, mm-hmm. dum. Dum, 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 mm-hmm. da, 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 da. It goes through piano, plays the whole theme again, pianissimo, even quieter. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. And then pow, yeah. out of nowhere. So you you have a good. It feels like 30 seconds to a minute of quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Just the time passes very slowly, and then this huge chord. Uh, so in Haydn's old age, his biographer, George August Griesinger, asked him whether he wrote this surprise to awaken the audience. <laughs> Haydn replied, N- no, but I was interested in surprising the public with something new and in making a brilliant debut so that my student, Pleyel, who was at that time engaging, uh, engaged by an orchestra in London in 1792 and whose concerts had opened a week before mine, should not outdo me. <laughs> People always trying to outdo Playel, <laughs> that guy. Uh, Playel, by the way, he's the one whose son, uh, Mm-hmm. is the man who takes Berlioz's uh, first fiance away from him <laughs> uh, just it's all one big yeah. circle uh, so yeah so um the first allegro of, of my symphony he continues had already met with countless bravos, but the enthusiasm reached its highest peak at the andante with a drum stroke yeah. encore encore sounded <laughs> in every throat and playo himself complimented me on my ID yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's really funny. And you know, the, this other idea, <clears throat> sorry, this other thing that we've talked about before, you know, that, you know, people uh, obviously clapping between movements, but not only that, but also requesting for the same movement to be played again, you know, these this crazy ideas that we don't, we don't see anymore.
2: <clears throat>
0: so the work was popular at, his, at its premiere. Uh, the, the Woodfalls Register Critic wrote, uh, quote, the third piece of Haydn's was a new overture um, symphony. Um, of very ex- extraordinary merit. It was simple, profound, and sublime. The Andante movement was particularly admired, um, Also the Morning Herald critic wrote, um, quote, the room was crowded last night. A new composition uh, from such a man as Haydn is a great even event in the, in the history of music. Uh, his novelty of last night was uh, a grand overture, the subject of which was remarkably simple, but extended to vast com- complication exquisitely modulated and stri- and striking in effect. A uh, critical aplast applause was fervid and amb- abundant unquote. Uh, the symphony is still popular today, of course, and is frequently performed and recorded. Uh, so it's in, f- in four moments. Of course this is a structure that you know, we've talked about before. Um, and you know, this, this four moment structure is something that happens basically here in the, in the classical period, right? We talked about Stamitz. He's the first one that uh, you know, has the, the dance moment and then Haydn does the same thing um so like all of Haydn's Lone symphonies the work is in four movements, uh, mark as follows, adagio vivace on the first movement so it has a slow introduction, then the second moment is the andante, the third movement is the minueto or allegro Moto. and the, the fourth moment the finale is allegro molto as well
1: so the symphony begins with Haydn's customary slow lyrical introduction in 3-4. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Allegro, which is after the introduction, it's, uh, it's a nice brisk 6-8, mm-hmm. he, he resorted to one of the clever little touches that kept his music so fresh. Uh, the music is written in sonata form but with, uh, with only one true theme rather than the usual two. Mm-hmm. The whole exposition is built on the melodic ideas within a single theme. Mm-hmm. Although, on most hands, the result would have been monotonous. So Haydn spins out every fragment of the melody using surprising transitions and key changes mm-hmm. and all kinds of fun things.
0: Yeah. So, the second moment, the surprise moment, is an andante in theme and variation form, um, and it's in, in 2 4 time in the subdominant key of C major. Uh, the the theme um, uh, The theme is in two 8 bar sections, each repeated, then repeated at the end of the first section is pianissimo with pizzicato, like you say. In the lower strings uh, to set up the surprise. Uh, four uh, variations of this uh, theme follow, starting with embellishment in 16 notes by the first violins, moving to a stormy variation in C minor with trumpets uh, and symphony, followed by solos uh, for the first oboist and flautist, um, and uh, concluding with a sweeping and lyrical forte repeating in triplets. Uh, in the coda section, The opening notes are stated once more, Uh, this time we harmonize with gently dissonant diminished seven chords over a tonic pedal.
1: Yeah, uh, the third movement is a minuet and trio in ternary form in the tonic key, G major. Uh, The tempo allegro molto very quickly is of note since it marks the historical shift away from the old minuet, which was paced at a much slower, more danceable tempo, uh, toward the scherzo. So we do have sort of uh, this does feel sort of transition in yeah. between uh, minuets the being periods. slow to the scherzo being fast. Uh, yeah. So by his last quartets, Haydn had started making his minuets presto, mm-hmm. very fast.
0: Yeah, that's also another one of those things that you know, we start to see here in the classical period, and then basically almost all of, of Beethoven's symphonies use the scherzo as the, as the dance movement. Um, So the finale is another sonata rondo form, Um, so this is a combination between rondo form, having a theme that always comes back, and a combination with the sonata form. Uh, And this is a flexible structure that Haydn was partial to, he used it a lot. After stating the rondo theme, Haydn takes his time getting to the second one, using the typical episodic structure of the rondo. Uh, There is a significant development before the return of the rondo theme. Uh, the surprise in this moment is the long coda, which is, is surprising key changes, it's uh, more like another development section. Uh, this long coda also emphasizes the timpani. So the surprise is, is here is the, the super long coda, um, with really weird changes, and uh, key changes, and also emphasizing the timpani. So that's another thing that I think also is important towards the next period, right? Because uh, Beethoven's codas are famous for being so long, and I mean, we see the beginnings of that. with Haydn?
1: Yeah, it's pretty fun.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Haydn knows how to keep everything
1: together and it's uh, one thing that I do when I uh, when I listen to this kind of music is it's it's, if you can read music it's a nice thing to have a score and one of the nice things about classical music is that IMSLP or the uh, public Mm -hmm. domain uh, library of uh, scores has not only the full scores but also piano reductions so you can not only Follow along in the piano reduction to see everything in a tiny little bit. But you can Try to play, actually yeah. play it at the piano if you yeah. want to. Uh, and these are these pieces are really quite amazing in the way they're put together. And, and this is no exception. This is one of the one of the great masterworks of uh, the classical leader. Just very well put together, just mm-hmm. everything going where it ought to go. Mm-hmm. It's not about um, trying to come up with something new, even though this does have a new feature in it that, that Haydn did, as yeah. we saw, enjoy people's reaction to.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a really great, great piece. All right, so um, anything else you want to say? <coughs> I think I'm good on Old Haydn. I think I well, another important thing about Haydn also is you know I think I talked about a little bit about it before is that you know he was a servant at the Esterhazy court. You know he was living away in this palace. He was wearing, wearing wearing the servant robes, the robes you know, and basically acting like a servant. And you know that's also very important because we're going to talk about Mozart and we're going to talk about Beethoven next, and we will see how things start to change in terms of. How a composer uh, acts towards his patrons and things like that (laughs) all right yeah Uh, very good all right well thank you for listening to another episode of the symphony podcast uh as always you can email us at symphonypodcast.gmail.com if you have any questions you can find us on youtube you can find us on itunes and until next time thank you for listening thank you for listening